With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever in the world you are today. Uh, today is episode 16 of Y Web 3, Navigating Frontier Tech. Uh, so we're going to go through a whole bunch of, of really interesting topics related to Web 3, uh, AI, uh, global regulatory standards, and really kind of see a lot of the, the challenging and changing of, of crypto assets uh, and how platforms are adopting to these new territories and policies. Uh, we're going to discover some really intriguing developments, uh, like countries offering citizenship tied to specific financial assets. Uh, and the launch of a Europeg stablecoin, uh, EuroE. We actually spent some quite a bit of time with this. Uh, our journey uh, will also go into blockchain logistics, uh, innovative data sharing devices, biometric security collaborations, uh, and digital currency integrations with major platforms. Uh, I'm joined today by two amazing guests, uh, Dan Guido and Dave Perrell. Uh, today is uh, December 14th, 2023. Bitcoin is sitting at 42,300. The NASDAQ is at 14,700 and change. And the Fed is staying uh, relatively static at, at five and a quarter. Uh, Dave, let's go ahead with your intro and, and we're going to get right into the news here shortly. Jay, good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, uh, hey, audience, uh, Dave Farrell, uh, four-time tech founder, CEO. I've uh, been in the crypto sector for the last seven years, built up the largest uh, hosting and what we call tier zero uh, infrastructure company uh, in North America. Uh, back at it, interested in the integration of both energy and computing assets and excited to be here today. Fabulous, fabulous. Mr. Guido, thank you for uh, for joining us. We understand you're a little under the weather, but uh, super excited to, to have somebody here, especially with uh, some of the exploits we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm Dan Guido. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Trillibits. We're a software security research and development company that focuses on securing emerging technology. And that includes blockchain security, where we've become kind of the main uh, sort of security vendor that uh, DeFi apps, that people writing smart contracts, that people writing dApps, that people do anything with blockchain, uh, end up hiring to help them write secure code. One of the things I really like, and I just want to call it about Trail of Bits, is it's it's like you have to be really confident in your project and your and your kind of uh, everything to even want to engage Trail of Bits because you guys make your your results public, um, you know, right off the bat. So it's like it, it really is a, a gold standard to state like, no, we hired Trail of Bits, and 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 what the results were were exposed immediately. Yeah, that, that could actually be an hour-long talk uh, if we wanted to just zoom into that one topic, because I feel like there, there are a lot of other security companies out there that do publish some of the work that they do. Um, I think in the security community generally, like it, not in blockchain, nobody talks about the work they do, right? Everything is under NDA. Nobody wants to air their dirty laundry. Uh, and you hear very, very little about how the software that's on your iPhone or the software that's on your Mac or the software that you use on the web was secured. On blockchain, you hear pretty much everything. Um, but... You know, Trail of Bits has very strong st standards for the language we use to describe these things to people. We want it to be objective. We want it to be devoid of any sort of subjective analysis. And um, 
we want it to be trustworthy. We want to have integrity when we when we share those results with people. And I don't see the same standards being applied by some of our other competitors. They treat them as marketing documents. They use them to sort of say, oh, it was so great to work with these people. They gave us all the information that they asked for. It's a wonderful product and it's totally secure now. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really corrosive um, to the public understanding of whether a product is safe. Uh, so we try to make sure that even though I only have a contractual relationship with the client that hired us, I still consider the public that reads the document to be a, a party to that conversation and that I have to serve them just as much. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I agree with, with the standards because it's a very different world when we're talking about like, Hey, um, you know, let's, let's take one of the larger hacks that we've seen, you know, recently, which was 23andMe. I think this is actually a really bad one. It, it exposed a lot of, you know, uh, pertinent data about, about number of people. I was most likely exposed uh, as well, as well as my kids. You know, I did 23andMe, um, you know, you expect them to kind of keep that data safe. Um, seeing a bunch of things, you know, popping up, uh, you know, around LifeLock and others that, that are, you know, showcasing that some of my data is out there. Not, not a fun deal. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I can mitigate it. I can manage it. There's nothing there. When you have a smart contract, you know, that, that is assets, you know, has, has value, has, has currencies and others uh, in there that gets hacked and, and drained, like there is no recovery. There is no safeguarding. You're, you know, there is monetary damage that is unrecoverable at that point. And so I, I do agree that it, that in this new world of web three and blockchain tokenization of assets and, and, and identities and everything else, it has to be a slightly different standard and it needs to be very scary. Yeah. About the DNA privacy thing. I, I find this topic so fascinating because you know, with AI right now, everybody has their P doom, their probability of AGI taking over the planet. I, I, you know, I, I'm not on that bandwagon. That is okay. that is not my belief. But um, I think about the, the P of the end of DNA privacy, where the likelihood in the next five years that one of the major DNA companies gets hacked and has all of their core data leaked on the Internet is pretty high. I'd say it's probably about 100 yeah. <laughs> percent. And once that happens, it's not going to be everybody's DNA, but it's going to be enough that you can you can determine familial relationships. Uh, and that's it. Like once that's out there, you can't go back. Yeah. Um, so I just hit, I take all the tests. I've, I'm in every DNA database because I don't care. I've like already mentally prepared myself for this future. And I feel like the, the correct option to mitigate this outcome is to make laws about abuse of the DNA that will eventually become public um, rather than even try and technically secure it. Like we're already past the point where it's it's a protectable asset. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting topic. And it just, you know, going back to the kind of the security around it, um, you know, as you said, like, it's going to get out there, it's going to happen. Like, and I accepted that as well. When I when I took the test, I knew what I was doing, because I felt the benefits outweighed the risks. And, and still today, even with the, the latest hack, I'm like, you know, okay, fine. Right. Well, the benefits are like, you know, if, if I lose some data, and I get hacked, and I have to deal with some sort of fraud or whatever. But on the other hand, if I do 23 of me, and I find some condition that extends my life by even a week, yeah. right? Like I, I would trade getting hacked for living an extra week on earth. Yeah, I, <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, this is a great trade-off. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, and I, I agree with that. You know, I've, I've, uh, I have definitely found health benefits from, from that aspect, but the difference is, is that like when that hacked occurred, I didn't go log into my bank account and go, Oh, I'm broke now. Um, right. you know, Hey, I, I, I no longer own my home because the title just got, you know, yanked out from underneath me. And now someone else is, is trying to evict me out of my own home because, you know, there, there was an insecure document. So I, I really do 
believe that there is a difference between Web2 uh, and the data that we're managing there, which is absolutely should be secured and, and you know, could be secured if, if people really worked hard enough at it um, versus, you know, Web3, which is, you know, we're going to dive right into it now with Ledger, um, that, that it's, it's a different standard. You know, it, it just has to be, and it, and let's be clear, there's very few people in Web3 that are as, as, as concerned about security in my book as they should be, especially running mm-hmm. some large protocols. Yeah, no, there's a lot of people that aren't. I mean, yeah. a lot of people don't know how to take it seriously. I think that's a big problem. Yeah. But but yeah, you're right. The end effect is that there's just a lot of people slinging a lot of code. And I don't really know how it all comes together, but it does somehow. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, it's a scary world out there. Yeah, unregulated markets. But anyway, let's 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 jump into the first one, which I think is very relevant, which is Ledger. Um, you know, I, I I personally have promoted Ledger. Uh, you know, in the past, I have uh, used their devices. I have got a, a couple of them around here. Um, you know, we've done training classes uh, for YWells members and, and other people in the community on how to use Ledger. We did believe that they had a really good product. Um, there's a lot of other things out there, but it seemed like Ledger understood security. They understood, you know, being able to mitigate it. Um, and then something changed last year. And, and that was that they suddenly included this new app store. Uh, they had the ability to kind of have the, the recovery ability uh, that they were touting that like, hey, people are losing their seed keys. We want to be able to, you know, you run an update and, and then you'll be able to call us. We'll be able to get you into these things. And there was a dynamic difference from a, you know, kind of an air gapped device uh, that, you know, after the first, the first, you know, initialization of it never really should go back on the internet um, or or connect to it again. It's just, this should exist. It's a, it's, it's a better device. Um, And through now their, their decision to kind of make this more of a cloud device than than an air gap device, uh, there's a hack. Uh, the hack, very, very briefly, uh, we, we got it first from Sushi's uh, CTO, warns of an industry-wide exploit linked to Ledger's uh, Connect Kits. The compromised version prompts users to connect their wallets uh, via pop-up, uh, triggering a token drainer. Um, so essentially what this is, is that there's an app store now uh, in the new version of, of Ledger, and you can download you know various uh, apps to connect yourself with, with different dApps. So, hey, I want to uh, connect with Ethereum. I want to have Solana. You know, you want to have various chains. You want to have various updates. And so now there's this ability to kind of update and upgrade your device instead of having to buy a new one um, over and over and again, which is, which is not a, a bad concept. Uh, however, w- what happens when you open up you know, one door for yourself is that now there's a door. Um, Dan, have you worked, have you, obviously, I'm sure this has come across your radar. What, what's your thoughts and and could, was this avoidable? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Trilipitz has done audits of, I believe the last count was 21 different Bitcoin or uh, blockchain wallets in the past. Um, starting with the the OG, we, we looked at the Parity wallet right after they were hacked back in like 2018. Um, with, with these devices like Ledger, you know, they, they were never just a piece of secure hardware. They always had to connect to a computer at some point, and that computer is running software that could be manipulated somehow. A lot of times the mental model that people were thinking about was, well, what happens if there's malware on the machine? Uh, you know, people's laptops get malware on them all the time, and they can change the way that you interact with that hardware wallet and completely avoid all the security protections that it's supposed to be able to provide. So that's that's always been the case. Um, Honestly, uh, you know, I, I'm a bit shocked here. So this is a different issue, right? Like in this case, that software, instead of there being malware on your machine, that software itself has dependencies that it updates when you double click on it, when you when you run it, and they're resolved dynamically. 
they're pulled from the internet and loaded into the software in order to perform some sort of function. For something like a wallet, that's insane. You should absolutely not be resolving dependencies at runtime that aren't even pinned and thinking that you've got a trustworthy application through which to access your hardware wallet. Um, so I, I think a lot of companies in the blockchain space, they, they really have like this myopic vision of about what security is. They focus in on one particular thing. So the firmware on the ledger chip is like pretty robust at this point. It's, it's hard. It's not impossible, but it's hard to get data back out the other end. Um, but then you miss the fact that there's all this other software and a whole ecosystem that's required to interact with it. Um, so yeah, it's just totally bonkers decision for how to build this application. You know, it, it's interesting because again, <clears throat> you know, Web3 is supposed to be the more secure version. You know, there's all this cryptography and, and you know, <laughs> buzzwords that people use, but we've now put the idea of self-custody into people's hands. And, you know, while I think it's a, it's a right that everyone should have to have self-custody, just as you can go to a bank and, and withdraw cash, I, I don't think it's a great idea. Um, you know, I, I have quite simply changed my, my views on this by, you know, knowing so many people that were just, I mean, dedicated air gapped laptops, dedicated, you know, uh, you know, wallets and everything else and, and, and going through every step that they possibly could never once tweeting about that they're a Bitcoin owner or even letting anyone know, um, other than, you know, a few close friends and, and, and family and, and they're still getting hacked. They're still just like looking in their wallet going, where did it go? How did it get drained? How did I get exposed? And, and so, you know, this is one of those things that, you know, having that wallet attached to it versus just a paper seed key, like, this was supposed to be one of the one of the true cures, and now it's 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 poisoned. Yeah, I, I don't really ever. <laughs> for most people, I, I really recommend going to uh, a centralized exchange. They're going to have a security team that operates twenty four seven and that thinks every moment of the day how to secure the wallet that they are storing for you. And that's not something you get when you put it on, you know, put, put it under your mattress, right? Yeah. There is no security team. You are the security team. Are you capable of performing that task? I don't know. Um, and a lot of this comes down to, you know, you have to actually understand how all the software works and the whole stack that you're working with. Because, again, the ledger device could be safe. It could have all these certifications and whatnot. But if you're accessing it through an app on your Mac, and that app is written in securely in a way that's not perceptible visually, how are you going to know? Um, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah. Dave, you know, you, you were man, you were managing, you know, billions of dollars uh, a year of, 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 of Bitcoin and other assets. Um, you know, did you just have a single ledger or what was your security team like? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess a couple of answers to that question. You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? When we when I take take a step back and kind of look at what Ledger did here, there, there's two key value propositions to a wallet. It is security, number one, absolutely the biggest one, probably eighty percent, and then it's usability. And those two things are always at odds. They're always at the other ends of the spectrum, and you need to make choices and trade offs. I think mean, clearly here they made the trade-off in the wrong direction. The biggest concern that we or we always hear on the ledger wallets for people that want to do self-custody is it's hard to use. It's impossible for me to make it work for my dad, for my mom. They need to go to centralized exchange, and then you have different types of problems. Um, you know, it's interesting to see some of the people working on this this problem specifically. So I was at the Ocean Watch 
about two weeks ago with Jack Dorsey of uh, uh, Block, and you know, formerly Square, um, and they're coming out with a wallet. I haven't actually seen it yet, but I know they just announced it for these exact reasons. But they're going to have to make these types of similar trade-offs too. Um, I think to your question directly, like there's other services we would use systems like Fireblocks that would securely centralize deal with this, do with the liquidation, all those kind of components without having a single key and a single person. Because at an institutional level, there's a lot of challenges of one owner and one problem. And we've seen that with the issues of, you know, a laptop going missing, someone loses their keys and they're gone forever. And so these are, you know, the real problems are things that are being worked on, but they're going to continue to be a dynamic. I think to Dan's point too, like security isn't something you do once. It's got to be architected at the beginning. And if it's not, and if it's not progressively followed on, these are the kind of problems that that you see. And, you know, you know, fortunately, you know, Bitcoin was created from the ground up to, to be secure, but some of the, you know, the, the other ecosystems in and around it, I would say we're not. And it gets back to a lot of the usability concerns that we continue to see, you know, plague the industry. I think what's really interesting, and, and we're going to kind of bridge into the next article here in a second, is is that you know Ledger was a, was a startup. They're a new company that was born in the blockchain, and and this is what they do, and this is you know where they're going to go, and and clearly they got a little ahead of their skis, um, and and started to want it to be more than just you know a cold storage or a, a security device. They wanted you know an app store. They wanted all they had all these these you know kind of dreams of grandeur. Um, now we're seeing IBM. <laughs> Let's go back to the the uh, international business machines. Um, his is introducing the HyperProtect offline uh, signing orchestrator. So it's a new cold storage tech for crypto assets, uh, cryptography signing technology designed for secure handling of digital assets in cold storage. OSO uh, aims to reduce risks associated with manual procedures and enhance security for high-value transactions by incorporating features like disconnected network operations, real-time-based security, uh, multi-stakeholder electronic uh, transaction approval. Um, Ripple uh, just bought a company called uh, uh, Medico, um, and they are a long-standing partner with IBM in the crypto space, and they will be uh, one of the first users of this OSO design. Um, jumping back, you know, right over to you, Dan. You know, I, I listen. I, I applaud the, you know anyone that wants to get into the blockchain space and wants to enhance our ecosystem. Uh, when I was just at Money Twenty Twenty, there was almost no boots uh, that that did not have some sort of blockchain integration with them. So we're clearly seeing uh, fintech and tradfi, you know, adopting blockchain technologies. How? What's your feeling about IBM entering the fray? Well, you know, IBM has been kind of one of the original gangsters here. They they were uh, working on Hyperledger a long time ago and uh, really had put that forward as a solution. But then, uh, you know, the market didn't really take to that and they had to switch gears. So <laughs> they have some competence in this area. You know, they, they still employ thousands of research scientists that are uh, all quite competent, um, especially in the AI field as well. Um, so their ability to turn around a product like this seems pretty seems pretty good, and it, it solves a problem that people have, right? Like the uh, advice that a lot of people like myself would give to to companies using uh, blockchain technology would be that if you have keys, you should probably put them in an HSM. And HSMs are extraordinarily obtuse to work with. They are, uh, you know, the user experience is extremely poor. There's lots of manual steps involved, and it breaks the workflow of whatever kind of application you're trying to build. So if there's an opportunity to improve that, um, I think a lot of people would take a look. And right now I, I do see a lot of activity from other funded startups that are trying to fix this sort of 
basic like cryptographic operations problem that people have with blockchain technology. Uh, you know, Bastion is another good one um, that's also solving in the you know similar space. Uh, so I, I expect that this is likely going to be competitive in the next couple months and, and years uh, with with new solutions coming out. When you say competitive, and you know, I <clears throat> I was just at the Firebox conference, you know, last week, and you know, really, like, it's amazing to see, you know, when you see hundreds, there was over seven hundred and fifty people from around the world, you know, focused on just wallets, <clears throat> you know, wallets, integration of wallets, integration with custody, you know, all all the kind of talks that you want to have, um, but there was no one talking about affordability. <laughs> Like, like, you know, Fireblock's cheapest plan is like $70,000 a year. Um, and it's great. It, it's fabulous. I mean, I, I think they've built in some great protocols, but that's not something that the average person, uh, you know, that wants to buy a couple hundred dollars worth of, worth, worth of cryptocurrencies is going to be able to have access to. Do you feel that, that, you know, we're going to, and that was the way email and a lot of other things started out way back in the day in web one. It was just, it was, it was business operations and then it worked its way into consumers. We've kind of, have a reverse cycle here right now where it's everything's starting with retail and consumers and now it's working its way back up to, to institutions. Do you, do you feel like we're going to see an affordable enterprise grade uh, custody solution anytime soon? Yeah. So in the security industry, we call this the security poverty line. Um, it's the area where, you know, you have to pay enough in order to like board the ride. Right. Yep. Um, there's a lot of opportunities above that $70,000 mark or whatever it costs for, for Firebox. But below it, it's a very underserved market because you can't make a market out of it. You can't actually address it well enough to make back the cost of your product development. Um, the blockchain world has kind of put that in a, a different sort of balance, right? Because you're dealing with a direct representation of some kind of value. Uh, so a lot of people have a lot more money and a, a lot more immediate negative effects if they don't secure it well. So the security poverty line is actually a lot lower. Um, but still, you know, I, 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 I just I haven't seen a lot of development of like security conscious and security forward uh, wallet software and, uh, you know, mini HSMs, things like, you, you know, using you, you can buy a YubiKey HSM. Uh, YubiKeys are the security keys that you can put yeah. in your USB slot. They let you log into Google. Uh, to Dropbox, to like all these other things, they're great. You should totally use them. Every single laptop at Trail of Bits has a YubiKey in it. Uh, and YubiKey makes a special version that's an HSM, which means that you can load key material into it and then you can have it perform trusted cryptographic actions. So you could use that to like store all the keys to interact with your smart contract. And uh, that is fundamentally better than leaving it present on your computer somewhere or in a server somewhere. Um, but that's sort of a DIY thing. There's not a lot of software to help manage that process. And there don't seem to be a lot of service providers that could assist with it. So even though the raw material is there, the person to glue it all together hasn't materialized. Interesting. Interesting. Dave, again, you know, this is, this is, um, you've spent so many years, you know, managing, you know, uh, you never managed funds, but you had to, to kind of facilitate this going back and forth. You've seen good solutions, bad solutions. I'm sure you've gotten some of those calls going like, Hey, where did I, I, I lost funds? Things happen. You know, are most people as concerned with custody and, and the security around custody as they should be? And you were dealing with institutional, um, people that were, you know, in, in your, in your latest foray, um, you know, do you feel that it's, it's top of the mind when we're, when we're talking about mining or, or, you know, really the creation of these things? 
Yeah, great question. I, I mean, I, I guess I'll first start out. I think anytime that uh, you know a brand like IBM is getting into this space is good for the overall industry. Um, I would have loved to have been present when they came up with that brand name. <laughs> it might be the, 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 the whiteboarding session uh, because uh, I, I can't imagine that was the, the, the my, would have been my pick. But um, that, that aside, I think, you know, it's not a one size fits all type of idea. Right. And I think there's kind of a, you know, a, a history here of the, you know, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Like that makes sense if you're a single user and you're looking to hold on to these keys forever. Right. Or the, the, the actual the actual uh, the actual assets themselves. Uh, in the case of like a lot of the miners, there's a lot of liquidation, there's movement, there's other you know financial uh, concerns and ideas and things that they need to do. And it just really is a different solution set that they need. It might be need to do daily liquidations. They might need to you know, actually transfer a piece of it out from time to time and have different types of custodial controls. And some of those solutions, I, you know, we talked about Fireblocks and there, there's several out there that have been working to address that. Um, I think Dan's point where that kind of that mid-market, like, you know, less than, you know, when you're, you're putting, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in there a month and some sort of movement is where there's not necessarily a solution for it. And I don't know if that's going to be something that's going to be addressed in the meantime. And I think that's going to continue to be a gap just because there aren't economics that are going to necessarily really makes sense. That's interesting. So, so pivoting a little bit to, uh, to, to Dave, something you're, you're a little bit more familiar with, and we'll, we'll put uh, Dan a little bit on his, on his heels here. Um, so the European central bank, uh, recently examined the environmental impact of banknotes. Uh, isn't it nice to see them caring about somebody else's energy consumption? Um, they identified 16 impact categories. Uh, banknotes have a smaller environmental foot, uh, footprint compared to crypto. Uh, however, energy efficiency remains. They, they, targeted specifically, I think this is interesting, ATMs contribute to 37% um, of, of the, the carbon imprints of, of banknotes uh, with transportation of those banknotes at 35%. So close to, close to or over 70% of the, the footprint of these things, the, the carbon offset is just with the, the distribution of, uh, you know, from transportation or as well as is ATM uses. And, and again, I, it's hard to believe that ATMs are, are that prevalent as far as energy consumption, but I guess nobody's ever, <laughs> never worried about it because they're plugged in 24 seven. Um, but, but when we think about like the, the arguments that they make around cryptocurrencies, which are, you know, frictionless, uh, generally I would, I would say, you know, relatively low, uh, low energy compared to anything else. Even Bitcoin, I think, is low energy compared to, you know, when you're talking about bank branches and, you know, entire buildings and, and people driving to work. You know, if you kind of take into factor a lot more than just like, you know, one or two things, you know, what was the what was the manufacturing cost of those ATMs? I, I do think that, that Bitcoin's much lower. That being said, uh, the, the crypto industry has been addressing this for a while. And I'd love to just hear your takes on uh, an article like this, as well as what you've been seeing, you know, in your career uh, uh, as a professional miner, um, that that has been taken to kind of really mitigate and, and drop that significantly. Yeah, what, what I always look at these the, the mainstream media. You always got to take a step back. Who's writing it, and what's their what's their purpose, and what's their intent? <laughs> I've seen. I can count on one hand how many of these I've seen that have been truly w without any sort of form or function in terms of where they want to take the narrative. 
right? Where they're truly independent. It just rarely has existed. And, you know, there was something in the Wall Street Journal just like a week ago about water usage in Bitcoin. And it was just, it had just a bunch of assumptions and things that simply didn't didn't pencil out. Um, I think, you know, and, and I see this on the other side too, in some of the, the, the pro crypto, like they don't take everything into account either. And it, it, it's simply got a narrative that is really meant to fit the industry. I think what, what's really missing is that independent body to really step back, take a look at the environmental effects of what's really happening here. You know, and, and we see this obviously even in things like EVs, like with, with battery chargers, with, with the, the amount of mining that needs to go into these types of things, the transmission that needs to get built out, the generation, like just all the things aren't being taken into account. And I just feel like they're all biased. And so the, this ECB one, I, I see a very similar context to what I've seen historically. And uh, unfortunately, I don't see that changing right now because everybody has their view and their direction and they're a bit shielded of where they want to take this. Interesting. Um, I will say that um, a lot of these analyses of like blockchain networks globally um, tend to be pretty naive to, to piggyback on some of what Dave was saying. Uh, we, we did a project like this for DARPA back about, I think it was almost two years ago now, where we studied whether blockchain networks are even distri- uh, decentralized at all. Hmm. Um, and that project necessitated almost a year of effort from a team of people writing custom software to analyze the Bitcoin and Ethereum blockchains. Uh, because the networks, uh, even though the transactions are transparent, you know, you can go investigate all of them purportedly. Um the, the mining software that's used, how those things communicate to each other, where they're located, um, and all the other factors involved in achieving consensus on the network are actually very opaque. There mm-hmm. aren't tools to monitor it. There aren't tools to investigate it. And uh, it kind of just comes together. <laughs> and um, our, our analysis and the tools that we put on, online are some of the only tools that enable you to do that. So, uh, yeah, like th- this sort of analysis, I, I would immediately give a little side eye to, cause I'm, I'm not sure it was as rigorous as probably the work that we did. Yeah. They, they, they never really are. And I, I think that's one of the points I want to bring up is there's a lot of work that's happening inside of our industry to address the, these types of things. You know, we're seeing, um, you know, I, I would say in my, in my opinion, I think that, uh, crypto professional, um, crypto miners for, for Bitcoin and for others are some of the largest investors in alternative energy <clears throat> and also developing, you know, lower costs because it doesn't make any sense, uh, you know, when, when you're really talking about like energy is, you know, there's a direct ROI on energy. You want to maximize your return on a, that energy usage. And, and Dave, you, you used to talk about this at length, you know, you're always looking for, um, you know, cheaper energy, energy that was just getting, you know, really disposed of in a variety of ways. Like you need not just cheap energy, but, but you need to maximize your ROI on that. Yeah, I think exactly that point. I mean, miners, are going to do what's in their economic best interest, right? They're economic animals at the end of the day, they're going to the lowest cost. Lowest cost is normally driven by renewable or stranded. You know, we see that play time and time again. Um, I think there's been a lot of additions to like, you know, the grid balancing and some of those things. And, and, and while they're true, fundamentally the economics are what drive this industry and continue to do so. Uh, we're going to, and it, it's, you know, fundamentally a commodity production market and it's continued to scale, it's continued to grow, it's going to continue to mature. Lowest cost will win. And at a certain point, only lowest cost will survive. 
And so we're going to continue to see that evolution of high cost miners either get taken out of business or try to find a ways to drive it down. I do see a future where there's much more vertical integration, i.e., and I wouldn't say just proof of work compute, but computing in general, uh, the data center world is also going to go this way where they're more vertically integrated and synergistic with these energy assets. Uh, just because like with, you know, like uh, what we're seeing with generative AI, like the just the multitude of power and energy that's needed just to make it work, it's going to force that. And the transmission and, and some of the other technologies just aren't there to do it the way that the, the, the uh, industry has been doing it for years. And so that's going to drive, I think, a, a lot of changes. But miners specifically, especially commodity production, are going to continue to drive towards lowest costs. And, and that's going to continue to evolve. You, you bring up You bring up a really good point. The, the AI, you know, world hasn't even yet to be attacked by the environmentalists to the same capacity that the crypto industry has been attacked. And, oh, no, I mean, it has. It oh, has. is it good? Good. I it's, just missed it. it, it yeah, extremely um, uh, effectively. Like, uh, there's, a, there's a paper from a woman named Tinmit who got fired from Google for, for describing the, the effect of AI on, on climate change. Uh, it's a paper called Stochastic Parrots. And... Okay. That is one of the most widely referenced papers in the entire field of AI. It describes all the negative effects of, of AI quite succinctly in about, you know, five or six pages. Um, really good paper. I recommend reading it. I, I will absolutely check that out. I mean, because one of the things I do know, uh, you know, I also am in commercial real estate, um, is that there is a mass hunt around the planet for new data centers. Um, and, you know, right now it's it's actually hard to take any existing data structure data um, infrastructure because generally, you know, these are built for, you know, you want to, you want to have kind of the maximum power, everything else. And even for like Bitcoin and everything else, it's hard because it's like, you know, when you're thinking about the ASICs, they're just like burning energy. I mean, they're doing as much as they can to produce as much, you know, horsepower as they can. And now all of a sudden with AI and, and like, look, at the end of the day, if, if, if a Bitcoin node or a Bitcoin, you know, data center, which happens all the time in Texas goes down, the network stays up, everything's fine. Like it, you can turn them on, you can turn them off, you can migrate them, you can move them around, you know, solar energy, it just shuts down at night. No big deal. You were earning a little bit of money. But, you know, if, if, if chat GTP was going down every time there's a storm, you know, in, in Texas or that every time that there's a power spike in California, if an entire web two websites goes out, like it doesn't work anymore. And so they're now really kind of going in and, and stealing, um, you know, very, very intrusive on power. So I, I do agree. And I do know this. And, and I'm glad to hear that somebody is speaking up because if we're going to be attacked in, in, uh, <laughs> for, for cryptocurrency mining, you know, AI really is, is going to overtake that very quickly if they haven't already. Yeah, it's coming. At a certain point, energy usage is neither good nor bad, right? It, yeah. it is what it is and providing that. And we'll see technology evolve with that. I think to your point, Jay, I think two things about your, your comment is that there's, there's, there's both what I consider industry norms mm-hmm. that, and also technological progress that has been made that addresses some of those things. And you see this in real time today, like in Amazon. I mean, you have availability zones, things fail over, things change. That same technology, that same kind of comprehension can be built into the software layer for things like ChatGPT. Um, and people need to think that all the redundancy doesn't need to be built in the physical layer. And that can drive both the cost down of compute and the availability to put these in places where we traditionally wouldn't. And that's, I think, going to be a big shift in the data center world. You know, the commercial real estate side, it's just opening up opportunities that previously weren't there. It's going to be interesting to see if the miners 
can start to pivot some of the business model because it's such a fundamentally different business, right? Mining is the only company, business I've ever been in where you don't need to go to market. You don't need sales. You don't need marketing. You literally plug a machine in and you have revenue generation, right? And AI, while there's some marketplaces, aren't necessarily all there. You still got to get forward end and be able to contract, have clients, et cetera, and be able to actually turn that up. And so I think that's going to be the biggest shift as we continue to see, you know, to your point, the, the big push for power at a global scale. Well, I think we're also seeing this in, in a variety of ways. So in, in the commercial real estate world, you know, there, there's always been kind of metrics, you know, depending on, you know, is, is this, is this uh, uh, industrial, is this retail, you know, everything else. And, and now there's, there's a new metric that I'm starting to see, you know, in my kind of uh, due diligence as I look through buildings, which is available power. Um, or distance to to substations and others, and that's something that was never there a few years ago. And I can say from experience, um, you know, we were one of my properties that I sold uh, a couple of years ago was selected specifically, um, not just because of the location, but because of access to power, and was ultimately purchased, you know, by Tesla. Um, because now all of a sudden, there's there's you know like. I never needed that much power when I owned the building. Um, you know, no one else would have ever needed that much power, but suddenly you have, you know, a, a, an electric car, um, you know, retailer that is going to be doing service and everything else. And they had to be able to charge these cars, you know, before delivery or after service. Um, and they're now going back through and kind of remove, you know, kind of updating some of their, their, their service centers. So I think power, which we've always known is kind of that, that crux thing that just existed. Uh, it's now becoming in short supply as, you know, we move to electric cars, we move to generative AI, we move to, you know, digital money. Uh, there is, I mean, people have warned for a while, there's going to be, you know, scarcity of, of power because of how we generate it. Yeah. 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 And if you, if you, if you multiply that, if everybody had an EV, Okay. And the, the amount of transmission, like it just, it doesn't, doesn't pencil, yeah. <laughs> not even close. Right. And so that's where I say it's fundamentally like, again, it, it's who's writing the narrative. And yeah. if it's Tesla, it's like, Hey, EVs are great for the, for the, the world. They're great for the environment. They're not polluting. Yeah. You take a step back, you look at everything else that needs to happen amongst it. Is it really? And so again, more independence is needed. And I just wish the mainstream media the Wall Street journals, et cetera, the world were much more tuned into that because they're they're not. Yeah, that, that's that's not media. That's propaganda. Let's 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 that's call it. What it, is. it. So one of these things that I I think people should know that might cause them to lose even more sleep after after listening to this episode is um, so as our reliance on electricity grows over time, as the grid becomes electrified and uh, all the objects you know I just replaced a washer or a dryer and they're they're both electric, right? Um, that's the direction we're all going. Uh, <clears throat> these things become relevant to national security very quickly. Uh, like if the power goes out, it's not uh, an inconvenience. It's a life-threatening situation. Um, and as we enter into more global conflicts, there are a lot of people out there that are using cyber power, that are using like, you know, hacking into stuff in order to affect these sorts of resources. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a really big story in the Wall Street Journal and other mainstream media right now about how China has tasked teams within their military to gain access to all the critical infrastructure supporting our power network uh, in the United States as a preparation for a future conflict. Um, it's, it's shockingly scary uh, since that's the sort of thing that you need to prepare ahead of time in order for it to work when you need it. Um, and that's the future that China's preparing for and uh, it means that, you know, next time we do something where, uh, you know, we enter into some kind of global conflict, um, 
they can turn off the lights <laughs> and, and, and they can do it instantaneously and they can do it in a location that's like far away from the coast. Um, so yeah, there, there it is. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Well, and, 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 and your point, like a lot of the critical infrastructure just simply isn't available. You try to get a large scale transformer, uh, 150, 200, 300 MBA, I mean, 18, 24, 36 months type of build uh, types of uh, lead times. Yeah. And, so, and that's just the raw manufacturing, right? And that doesn't enough. even describe the computers that come to manage that equipment, where historically, if you're purchasing stuff to power a power, a, you know, power station, um, it's not going to be running like the latest and greatest version of whatever operating system that is out there. It's probably going to be some stuff that's maintained for like 20 years. Yeah. Uh, so all this stuff is the guy with a 50 caliber gun, right? Like, or, yeah. or, you know, some kind of just silly bomb that can throw it over. It's just pissed off. Like all those kind of things could affect us in the, in the same kind of manner you're talking about. So were you in New York when you had the power outage? What was it? Three years ago? I was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've been in a couple of big power outages in New York. Um, I remember when I was in high school, there was, there was one that lasted for like four or five days. Uh, it was August. I can't remember. Um, it's fun. I mean, back then it was fun. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're out of school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In 2023, it's definitely not fun. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so let's, let's, uh, move over to a couple quick, uh, uh reg tech talks, uh, everyone's favorite, favorite topic uh, real quick. Cause I think this is relevant is number of the things we're talking about, you know, we're no longer as much of geographically limited when we're talking about, you know, cryptocurrencies and everything else, <clears throat> you know, really is a global phenomenon. Um, and the reason why some of some technologies work so well, like email is there are just international standards, you know, I can kind of controls uh, a variety of things. There's, there's a, a number of others, you know, for DNS control and, and why domain names work. Um, you know, we've kind of said like, here's the rules of the internet. Um, and then there's obviously, you know, geographical, you know, tweaks and differences. Uh, but, but email flows and works very well because, you know, it doesn't matter what your tech stack is, doesn't matter what your domain name is. Um, it just, it just flows and it's very inclusive. You, whether you've got a, a multi million dollar enterprise grade server, um, or you just have a free Gmail account, so like ev- anyone can send and receive email, you may get some spam, but you know, whatever the case is. Um, so right now there's, there's just vastly different, uh, you know, opinions on, on what, how to manage, uh, digital assets, uh, tokenization, cryptocurrencies, and everything else. So on one hand in the United States, uh, which I think is entirely taking the wrong approach on, on this plus so many others, uh, we have, uh, Senator Warren has come out, uh, with a number of other, uh, senators and proposed the digital asset anti-money laundering act. Sounds great. Sounds like, of course, I would want to support that. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want anybody, you know, laundering money. I don't want them to be using these things. Um, but aims to combat illicit uh, use of crypto for money laundering and, and terrorism financing. Um, I, I could read more of this, but but at this point, it's been debunked so many times that that this is a non-issue. She continually refers to as, as the same study from about two three years ago uh, that that was incorrectly, uh, you know, kind of calculated. And and more than that, it's it's does it occur? Of course. Uh, what's the scale of it? It is, you know, fractional, you know, a fraction of a single percent uh, compared to the amount of money laundering that occurs within the traditional uh, financial ecosystem uh, or just using U.S. cash banknotes as well. Um, the, the positive note on, on Ms. Warren here is while she is 
a, a very uh, vehement anti-Bitcoin, anti-crypto, and anti-digital money person. Um, out of the the 300 bills that she's proposed over the last three years, uh, she is at a zero percent uh, hit rate. Um, so a lot of a lot of smoke, a lot of steam, a lot of threats. Um, it does influence things, but but nothing ever goes through. That being said, is there any validity uh, to to things that we should be concerned about? Um, you know, as as Americans, um, or or from this this juncture about the things that she's saying. I'll, I'll start with you, Dan. Yeah, <clears throat> so I I disagree with a little bit of your your your, your take there. I do Good. think this is a problem. Um, okay. You know, North Korea in particular is stealing billions of dollars of cryptocurrency and using it to directly fund their nuclear ambitions. Right, like that is the story that people in D.C. are are are, are hearing, and that is backed up by facts. Um, and it's a really serious new fundamental capability, right? Like there's tons of fraud that happens on traditional banking. Well, not fraud. Um, tons of um, you know money laundering that happens on traditional banking. But we kind of have a, a handle on that. Like we know where it happens. We can monitor it. There's like procedures around it. Um, you know, you can tighten the screws, loosen them up, whatever. There's controls. Whereas this is a fundamental new capability. You know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and everything else. Uh, expose sort of brand new tools that a lot of people that are, uh, you know, uh, trying to hide these money flows or, or, or trying to do them too quickly for, for people to notice uh, are able to abuse in a completely uncontrolled environment and left unaddressed, uh, <clears throat> left unaddressed, this could become a much, much larger problem. Um, it's not just North Korea. Russia makes very extensive use of uh, cryptocurrency to do things like avoid sanctions. Uh, they also have um, a record of their intelligence agencies using cryptocurrency in order to uh, do things, including payoff informants, as well as um, uh, the shadow brokers campaign, uh, where they solicited donations from the public in order to release classified information from the National Security Agency. Like, there's a lot of abuse that's being facilitated by cryptocurrency, and I, I think it only makes sense that people in Congress are are thinking about, well, what should we do to make this less of an issue going forward? A lot of people overreact to that, and they create these very unsophisticated knee-jerk responses. That's true, um, but certainly I, I think this rises to the level where Congress should probably have a look at it. The, and, and I and I and I love what you said real quick, and I, I want to respond. I, I do believe that every transaction on on blockchain should be KYC, AML, OFAC compliant, GDPR, the entire thing. So I, I do not believe in in uh, you know being anonymous um, for financial transactions, um, and and that is is certainly the safeguard. Um, so, but but as far as your other things, you know, that's new information to hear about North Korea for me. Um, Dave. I think we can't oh, be on one side saying that these technologies are revolutionary and they open up new opportunities for the world of finance. And then also saying that, well, money laundering is not an issue and we totally shouldn't worry about it or like it doesn't exist. It's the whole thing is brand new and it, it is exciting and it offers a lot of new capabilities and it offers a lot of new capabilities for money laundering, too. <laughs> and people are people have seized on that. <clears throat> yeah. I, yeah, no, uh, Dave, you go. You jump in before I keep going. Yeah, so no, I mean, I, Dan brings up some good points, but I'll just say I think it's a balance. You know, I think it's you know, I think the U.S. has now weaponized the U.S. dollar to such an extent 
that I think the reserve currency status on a long-term basis is at risk. And I think that's very clear. If you ever read like Treasury's War, like the things that have happened in the last 15 years yeah. is unbelievable. And I, I don't fundamentally blame Russia for trying to get off it, not just for the nefarious things, but just for the power that the U.S. can exert. And I think China has an exact similar view as would anyone else that's kind of a you know coming world power. Now, well, at the end of the day, some bad things can and will happen. I think the, the issue that I see in D.C. is a fundamental misunderstanding of how blockchain, how crypto, how digital assets work relative to the traditional financial system. And that's where I believe a lot of the like prescri- prescribed solutions simply don't work or just simply force it offshore. This doesn't go away. Like it's, it, They're not going to be able to like wish it away. And that fundamentally even might make, give it more, I guess, fuel to the fire to increase adoption. And so I think it needs to be a much more nuanced, balanced act where it's an educated policy. And that's not what I'm seeing right now come out of Warren. I'm seeing, to your point, Jay, like screaming, yelling, like this is effed up and we're going to fix it. But then they actually, when you start to look at the solve, it doesn't technically or practically work. Yeah. Well, and let me say why, uh, you know, let me, let me kind of clarify one of the things why I, I don't like uh, Warren's approach. I don't like a, a number of the, you know, what the SEC doing is doing, which is legislating through lawsuits. Um, I, I very much differently agree or agree with, with the EU's approach, which is my car, um, which is very quickly rolling out, you know, and, and we'll be continually updating uh, the markets and crypto asset regulations. Um, so, so FinRAMP, one of the companies we're launching, you know, we're, we're bypassing the United States at this time because there is no regulatory clarity. So if you want United States citizens not to touch these things, you know, that's, that's the government's choice. Um, but you were seeing Europe going, no, this is, this is a new asset class. We want to do things like eliminate money laundering. So everything's got to be KYC, AML, GDPR. Um, and they're being, they're being very clear that there are regulations, uh, to, around these things to to manage and mitigate uh, same as under MIFID two uh, money laundering and, and, and terrorism funding um, and we're seeing people respond we're seeing companies like myself you know uh, launching in the EU uh, Robinhood uh, right now is just announcing they're entering the EU crypto market uh, embracing regulatory clarity and I think that maybe have been a little bit of the miss that I had in the stand is that um, I'm not saying that she's entirely false uh, I'm saying that you know a lot of times it's just the the shaking of the the, the banter and, and being, hey, this is just an evil thing used for nothing but. Uh, there is no valid use for cryptocurrencies except for terrorism and money laundering uh, is generally where I like to, to, to completely disagree with her. That being said, I agree much more agree with the approach of like, provide the rules of the guidelines of how you want to do it and, and, and allow the companies and capitalism to kind of run the world versus, you know, just banning. What's your thoughts? You say Dan or Dave? Sorry. Dave, let's, let's say to you first, and then we'll come back to, to, to Dan. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah. Are you familiar, are oh, yeah, you familiar I mean, with Micah, my, my car at all? Sorry, what? Are you familiar with Micah or my car in the U at all? I'm not. No, no. Okay. I've done none in the U, so I'm not. But I guess it doesn't really change my, my view that I think to your point, you need the, the, the regulatory framework, you need clarity. The lack of clarity affects innovation. We see that today in in and amongst the you know the system itself. And again, I think the worst thing the U.S. can do from a regulatory and government standpoint is push it offshore entirely, where they have no say in the in the future. Interesting, Dan. What's your what's your opinion on in, on again? There's a big difference between the U.S. Uh, regulating through uh, through lawsuits versus the EU, you know, regulating through um, you know 
being transparent and, and trying to, to work with companies to create uh, rules and guidelines? Yeah, this is a little bit outside my area of expertise. Like I'm, I'm pretending to be a regulator right now in the U.S. because um, a lot of the lack of clarity from any area that Congress or that the executive branch agencies are regulating comes from the lack of interaction they have with technical experts. Um, so I've been volunteering my time over at the CFTC to help them wrap their heads around various kinds of emerging technology, whether it's AI, blockchain, or just cybersecurity in general. Um, and I, I think it's just an important thing that people participate in these institutions that are supposed to be here to, at the end of the day, help us. Um, you know, uh, if, if <laughs> I'm a, you know, I'm a doer, right? Like if I'm not happy with something, I get off my butt and I go walk myself down and walk myself down to the thing I'm unhappy about and try and fix it. Uh, so, you know, I, I think obviously uh, a lot of people need to think about what, what kind of expertise they can offer um, and, and, you know, find opportunities to, to provide it. And, and Dana, I, I, I want to kind of extrapolate on that for a second, because that is absolutely one of the most amazing things about you and what you've been doing. You've been educating, you know, Congress, you've been ed- educating, you know, as many people as you possibly can on, on the realities of these things, which is why we love having you uh, on Fireside and on the podcast, because, you know, at the end of the day, you are integral, you know, much more integral than I think most, most people understand into kind of Web3 success uh, or struggles, which is making sure that it is, it is secure, making sure that uh, institutions understand what, you know, who they're doing business with and partnering with. Where, where do you see the, the biggest lack of education? Um, you know, really, whether it's, it's United States or global, that we really should be focusing more on? Um, so, I mean, my, like my thing is security, right? So uh, the, the, the area that I see the greatest sort of disparity is, is in that particular subfield of, of all technology, right? Security is a field that you're either um, a novice that really doesn't know a whole lot about anything, or you're an expert that knows all of it. And there really aren't a lot of people that are in between. Um, so uh, the number of people that are experts is also very low, and they, they can't satisfy the need of society at large right now. So what you have is a lot of people that are running around just very uninformed about risks that they've uh, experience that they're that they're currently in, or what to do about them, um, and and that causes a lot of bad outcomes. Uh, it's especially prevalent for the blockchain industry, as we you know have beaten to death in the first half of this talk. Um, but uh, you know, it's just as prevalent inside Congress, even though they're like situated directly next door to the National Security Agency, the CIA, the FBI, whatever. Um, there's still just not enough expertise to go around. Um, yeah, that's that's sort of a problem. Um, yeah, and yeah. I don't really know of a whole lot of things that people are doing to fix that. Uh, <laughs> there, there's some nice like Coursera courses that are online. And I, I think what a lot of people are doing is from a software as a service standpoint, a lot of companies have taken a more paternalistic view on how they should provide security for their users, that they want to remove choice from uh, the operation of the product and provide security as default or even as something you can't turn off um, so that you have to think about less before you make some kind of action with the product. And in general, that's that's a pretty good solution, but it doesn't fix the root cause problem, which is just that people don't understand how technology works and what they're about to do could hurt them. 
and and hence now we've introduced magical internet money. Um, yeah, yeah, that was great. <laughs> Total, absolutely much less complex than the software you use every day. That's fabulous. So, uh, gentlemen, I really appreciate the time today. It's been absolutely fabulous. As we kind of draw, uh, you know, right now towards a close, I think we've covered a lot of topics. We've introduced a lot of fear into everyone uh, at this point. If you've not kind of dug into your drawer looking for your ledger and trying to think of, you know, what is my solution to deal with this? Um, you know, I, I, I would say, um, you know, I, I, I do trust, uh, you know, Coinbase um, that they're going to be in existence for a few more minutes. So maybe a temporary solution to, to move to a, a large exchange, maybe uh, Coinbase or Kraken. I'm not going to not going to name Binance at this time because they got their own issues. Um, but, you know, there, there's security clearly is something that you, if you are going to be in this ecosystem of, of holding digital assets yourself uh, or even having someone else hold it, it needs to be consistently evaluated uh, approach right now because there is no long-term like, Hey, I've been, you know, with, with us bank for, for three decades and everything's always been fine. Like this is, this is new emerging fields and we need to kind of really take that approach. Um, as we kind of round the horn here, uh, any final thoughts, Dave, and where can people find you? So, uh, final thoughts. Uh, the world is good. Things are still moving forward. <laughs> Some scary things along the way, but like anything, life life has risk every day. Waking up, right? And uh, I think the good news is we got we got good guys like Dan uh, and, and 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 other folks and professionals working to solve these problems each and every day. And you know, I just remember the the days of the the nineties early days of the internet, like so many problems, so many challenges, hard to use, ton of security issues, got fixed, right? And continue to evolve and continue to, uh, to move forward. We're seeing the same evolution in this industry. Um, it's it's just, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's the same and it's different all at the same time. So I think there's a, a, a lot of fun. So uh, you can reach me on my LinkedIn, uh, Dave Perrell, uh, P-E-R-R-I-L-L, and uh, happy to, to sync up with any further questions down the road. So Jay, thanks for having me. Fabulous. Dan, I, you, you powered through. You weren't feeling so great this morning. I hope you, <laughs> hope you feel better the rest of the day. But uh, final thoughts and, and where, can, where can people hunt you down? Yeah, just to piggyback on one thing you said, the exchanges that usually come up at the top of the list for me are, are uh, Coinbase, Crockett, and Gemini. Um, they all have security teams that are reputable. And Crockett and Gemini, uh, I've worked with personally through Trail of Bids. So um, I could, I could, <laughs> I'm not going to say that they're safe, but I am going to say that they invest a little bit more into their security than other firms I know about. Um, yeah, I mean, f- final thoughts are uh, like when you use technology like this, you got to try and keep it simple. Um, the minute, the minute that you overextend yourself and start using a whole bunch of technology that you don't fully understand um, is the time when you're going to get surprised and with a punch in the face, right? Um so really just make sure that you're using the lowest amount of technology required in order to get the job done. Um, and uh, I, um, I'm, I'm sort of hopeful for the future of this technology. Like right now, I think a lot of people have gotten the religion of uh, software security techniques like invariant testing that make DeFi applications substantially more secure. And it took a couple of years, like we were saying this sort of thing back in like 2017, 2018, it took a couple of years for the knowledge to get memed out there and adopted by everyone else. But um, today that that outlook is is pretty good. You know, people ask us to write uh, security tests and to define security properties for their code and then evaluate against that sort of rigorous standard to ensure the outcomes are actually dependable. Um, 
So that gives me some hope. <laughs> but it's still, you know, there's still going to be um, a security poverty line. There's going to be firms out there that don't have the money, that don't have the expertise, that don't have the capability, that don't have the influence, that don't have something that allows them to be secure. And that is going to constantly churn where every week there's going to be a new hack. And it's going to be because those people didn't have any of those characteristics to allow them to get above the poverty line and be be safe. Final, final question. Um, does AI help any of that, of this? Not really. <laughs> um, you, so, you just, you just killed like a thousand startups. <laughs> right yes. There. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> I think there's some really neat opportunities. So, uh, People in the math field have created a new tool called Lean Dojo, which uses AI to help to add as a proof assistant, a mathematical proof assistant, where it helps you walk through all the intermediate steps required to get to a fully working mathematical proof. It's a really cool system. It works the, the you know mathematical work that mathematicians do is now very accelerated based on using Lean Dojo. Um, I think there's opportunities for application of that to security testing uh, inside of blockchain software where you could extract out what the key security property. So here's just for anybody. Here's what a security property is. If I have a wallet and I give $10 to Jay, then that means that my wallet goes down by $10 and Jay's wallet goes up by $10. That's it. That's security property. If that is ever broken, if something else happens that's not that, then... I have a security vulnerability. If I give Jay $10 and we both end up with 10 more dollars, that's a problem. Um, so defining these security properties is the key task required to build safe software. Um, you have to have a comprehensive list of all the, all the properties, and then you need to have software that tests all the properties. Um, so an AI assistant that helps you define what those properties should be, as well as helps you write the tests for them, would be very useful. And it's something that we're working on right now. Um, but that's sort of like a, that's a minor addition, right? Like security's not just that. We, we publish something called the rec test, which are 12 yes or no questions that help you understand the maturity of your entire security program. Because uh, even if you write safe software, you need to have a process in place to deal with it when somebody hacks it. You need to have instant response, disaster recovery. Um, you probably need to have identified roles within the company that deal with these sorts of risks and that can manage them and co coordinate them. Um, you know, there's a variety of other things required to ship a secure product. Uh, so AI doesn't solve a lot of those. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a, a really nice like accelerator. It'll, it'll give us 10 or 20% more output based on, um, you know, judicious use of it, but it's not going to fundamentally change a whole lot in the short term. Fabulous. Fabulous. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, y Whales, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks again. Yep. Thanks a lot for having me. Y Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Y Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com.
YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.